You're listening to a special episode of Policy, Guns and Money covering the US midterm elections. Later in the show, you'll hear from Dr. Garana Grigic from the United States Studies Centre, providing insight on what issues were driving voters in the elections, security vulnerabilities of election infrastructure, and Trump's plans for birthright citizenship. But first up, Trump's Twitter antics and the new Cold War. Maddie and Stephen loosely chat all things US politics and foreign policy ahead of the elections. Thanks so much for joining me today, Stephen. It is a pleasure. Who could believe that it uh, was nearly two years ago that uh, Donald Trump was elected president of the US? It's kind of shocking, actually. You know, I certainly didn't think his presidency would last long enough to get to the midterms, and yet we are right around the corner. Um, So many commentators recently have been referring to these elections as a referendum on Trump. So, Stephen, how do you think he'll go in in the midterms? Customarily, the midterms and and the references to the midterm of the presidency, customarily, uh, the party in power in the White House tends to be subject to intense scrutiny and tends to lose seats. In the, uh, the House on this occasion, there are some 40 Republican congressmen who are retiring. That includes the Speaker, Paul Ryan. The Senate, however, there are 33 senators up for ballot, 23 of whom are Democrats, and 10 of whom, as I recall, are in red states. Uh, that is, states carried by uh, Donald Trump in November yeah. of 2016. <clears throat> there are all kinds of contests at work uh, here. The Kavanaugh uh, hearings uh, in terms of impact <clears throat> not yet crystallised in terms of voter movement except to the extent it narrowed the gap between Democrats and Republicans uh, in respect of intended turnout okay. from a 10-point gap favouring the Democrats to a two-point gap. And that's really so the key, Matty, to understanding the midterms. Favor. Yes. The, uh, the key to understanding the midterms uh, likely outcome is in turnout. And Americans generally don't turn their minds to midterm elections till after Labor Day, which is now passed, of course, and um, we're starting to uh, to run on to early November. God, that's a bit of a worry, isn't it? It's just come up so quickly. Last month as well, there was also a lot of chatter um, following a report from the New York Times that the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein Uh, he had discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to actually remove Trump um, following the firing of uh, the FBI director, James Comey. Every day I wake up and I see something new that Trump has, you know, said on Twitter or something ridiculous that he's done. How many late night presidential Twitter rants and how many random meetings with Kanye West do we really have to sort of see before this 25th Amendment actually gets invoked? Uh, Donald Trump... uh will almost certainly be beaten at the ballot box if he's beaten at all, rather than by invoking the 25th Amendment or through uh, impeachment. It was Rush Limbaugh who first identified Trump's greatest political strength, that he is a president who understands his base. And that's where Twitter is directed. I mean, it may strike many people uh, right across the spectrum, as absurd, some of the things that he says. And if you really want to immerse yourself in the absurdity of the Trump administration, then reading Bob Woodward's book, Fear, is a useful way to okay. start. I mean, some of the things that have been contemplated 
by this president like breaking not only the trade agreement with the Republic of Korea, but the security agreement with Seoul. Uh, uh, truly, truly chilling. And how much longer James Mattis lasts as Defence Secretary is, is really an important point around the world. But Twitter, Twitter is aimed at Trump's base, and he focuses on giving them red meat yeah. regularly, be they uh, evangelicals or uh, working-class communities in parts of the Midwest and the upper Midwest, which uh, proved decisive in November of uh, 2016, be yeah. they uh, a core Republican voters. The difficulty for the Democrats in the, uh, in the midterms historically has been mobilising sections of their base in African-American communities, for example, younger people, particularly students, who generally turn out at presidential time but show less interest in the, the yeah. midterm election. So it's going to come down to who mobilises the base best and most effectively yeah. in those House seats and uh, those Senate seats that are up for contest. At the moment, I think you can say the likelihood is the Democrats will recover control of the House narrowly. That's by no means certain, but there are enough seats in play to suggest the Democrats start well. And when you have Barack Obama out campaigning in Orange County, California, that suggests the Democrat game plan is uh, is, is, is focused. Yeah. The Senate, on the other hand, there are a number of, uh, of seats. Uh, I think uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia should be okay, but uh, Heidi Heitkamp is, uh, is, is under pressure, as is Senator Tester and uh, other Senator McCaskill and so on. The Democrats are likely to hold most of the seats at risk. But quite frankly, it wouldn't surprise if they drop uh, if they dropped a couple and um, the Republicans retain control of the Senate. If I can just move to U.S. foreign policy for a little bit, we saw a really interesting speech from the U.S. Vice President Mike Pence last week, in which he really sort of made explicitly clear this that this is at the Hudson Institute. Yes, that the very one. Um, he made it very clear that the U.S. does not intend to cede any more strategic space to China. And if anything, they really intend to sort of push back more strongly on China, which most people would argue is already happening with the tariff war and, and everything there. So beyond this, Stephen, what do you think this further pushback really looks like? We are in a new Cold War. No question of, of that in my mind. It's not been a question in my mind since I listened to David Sanger at the Aspen Security Conference mm. uh, a few weeks ago uh, and Sanger's uh, new book, the perfect weapon on the cyber war that's well underway, primarily in, involving China and the US, but there are other players, the Russians, the North Koreans, um, the Iranians, Iranians and so on. Yeah. And, and most Western uh, powers are very effective in cyber ourselves. You must remember that it was the NSA that hacked into Angela Merkel's mobile phone. I think we're in a new Cold War and what Vice President Pence did was to very much establish the picket line uh, in our region of the world, uh, in the South uh, China Sea, for example. The East China Sea has been less of an open contest since uh, President Obama declared, uh, under pressure from the Japanese and somewhat reluctantly, but he did declare that the uh, Zenkaku stroke Daiyu Islands, which are uh, claimed by both Japan and China, were subject to the US-Japan Security Treaty. And in other words, if there were hostilities there, then the United States would intervene in support of Japan. So in the South China Sea, a great many issues have got to be worked out. And, uh, of course, the Chinese declaration that they weren't going to militarise the island some years ago has been proven to be an absolute nonsense. The islands yeah. of Spratly and 
Paracel uh, chains if they've not been militarized, then they're subject to future uh, probable uh, militarization. So what the Vice President was saying was that the United States was not going to continue to permit China to be as assertive as it's been, to be as aggressive as it's been, mm. and would push back very solidly. Now, China has mounted a full court press, to use a basketball expression, uh, against the West for some time and has really slipped from assertion to uh, to aggression yeah. in a number of uh, respects. It's not only true of our region of the uh, of the world, it's true through the Belt and Road Initiative yeah. uh, right, right across the globe. Now, my own view is Australia should sign the protocol of the Belt and Road after negotiation and being involved. It's one of those areas where we can cooperate and in uh, a number of respects, as we gave advice to China on the Beijing Olympics, for example, take China in a, a direction by which uh, Beijing fits into the... Well, well, Beijing fits more readily into the international order. Yeah. And in that respect, because we uh, are forever committed to the international rules-based order, it does work in our, uh, our national interest. But there are some areas where we're going to uh, differ. The South China Sea is one of them in terms of rights of uh, maritime transit. Final question for you, Stephen. Classic US political TV shows like The West Wing, you know, they've received a lot of revival in audience viewership since Trump's election. And as Aspie's resident film and book critic, what film or novel or podcast would you sort of recommend to our listeners if they really wanted to sort of for some Trump escapism? For some Trump escapism, you cannot go past The Simpsons because <laughs> The Simpsons uh, was the first creative identification of Trump in the White well, House. Well, they, yeah, they called it. <laughs> uh, Lisa Simpson in the future becomes President of the United States and says that I've got a hell of a job to clean up after President Trump. <laughs> yes. Now, the, the script writers wrote that believing that was the most absurd conclusion they could reach. It turned out to be, uh, it turned out to be true. Woodward's book is very good. Uh, this is fear, fear yep. on the Trump uh, uh, White House. But I liked Ben Rhodes' book on the Obama administration called The World As It Is. Okay. You've reviewed that recently, didn't you? For the Australian just a week or, or so ago. Yep. And there are some, uh, some very good films about that give you an idea about uh, crises that the Republic has faced. And uh, The Post, for example, the Tom Hanks, Merrill Streep film about the Pentagon Papers and the Washington Post, the Nixon administration is very good. Okay. And it'd be it'd be useful if you really want to immerse yourself in American political culture of a dark time to look at all the president's men, the Woodward Bernstein, Jason Robards film about Watergate, mm. and then have a look at the, uh, uh, the Post, which is the prequel to it. And then if you're looking uh, to a uh, slightly more uh, nuanced version of Richard Nixon, as offered by Frank Langella, I always thought, played Nixon better than Nixon did himself. <laughs> Nixon, Fro Frost Nixon, the movie Frost Nixon, okay. about uh, Nixon's interviews with David Frost oh, out, at, uh, <clears throat> out on the Californian coast after Nixon uh, resigned, uh, or worth seeing. And I'd add one more film. It's got an Australian component. From memory, the actor's name is Jason Clark. He played Teddy Kennedy in the movie Chappaquiddick. And Chappaquiddick is a mighty film. Okay. About uh, the tragic death of Mary Jo Kopechny in a car driven by Senator Kennedy. And what, uh, what it shows is the domination of the Massachusetts Democratic Party and thereby the entire political process in the state <clears throat> by the Kennedy family. And there is a, a brilliant performance by Bruce Dern as Joe Kennedy Sr., mm -hmm. uh, recovering from a stroke but still a dominant figure 
wow. in the family. And Chappaquiddick is uh, is worth seeing. So th yeah, those are movies that yeah. I, would, uh, I would recommend that will put okay. some perspective on Donald Trump. It's, it's not as important to focus on Trump, the individual, as to what Trump represents. Yeah. Is he a one-off? I'm not sure. I'm not mm. sure. I really doubt that. Uh, it's a visceral American electoral response yeah, but he's to what they, what they believe have been the pressures upon the United States globally, mm. uh, domestically in terms of the economy, globally in terms of wars in the Middle East and elsewhere, yeah. and uh, a certain fatigue. Yeah, that's uh, what most people are saying now. He's more a sign of the times rather than just, uh, as you said, in the number. He used the temper of the times, yeah. and uh, that, that's, uh, that, that's most easily understood. Vanderbilt University in the United States has done some useful work on the Trump uh, coalition, and it's very similar to a traditional Republican coalition. Okay. There are some add-ons. And Trump is uh, is a very good political judge, which is why he's maintained his base. Mm. Uh, and the Democrats need to get their act together. To, to, to date, you'd expect Elizabeth Warren, a senator for Massachusetts, to be emerging as the most likely candidate. For candidate. Yeah. My own preference would be Joe Biden, but uh, the vice president needs 10 more years, unfortunately, uh, that he doesn't have. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there really needs to be a renewal inside the Democratic Party, not only in terms of people, men and women, but you have uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, Steny Hoyer and uh, a number of the leaders uh, well into their 70s. And Diane Feinstein, Senator for California, she's in her 80s and she's running again. Wow. So at some point you have to regenerate as a party, and not only in terms of personnel, but more importantly, in terms of ideas. Absolutely. And that's not been happening on the Democratic side of the aisle. And I trust it, uh, it will. Well, fingers crossed, hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for sitting down with me today, Stephen. Really appreciate it. In God we trust. <laughs> in God we trust. Love it. <laughs> and now we have Akriti, who interviewed US politics and foreign policy expert, Dr. Garana Grigic. The United States Studies Center has had excellent coverage and explainers on the approaching midterm elections in the U.S., including analysis of the key issues um, affecting the voters. Uh, Gorana, what are some of the, the most important issues for Americans voting next week? Yeah, great question, because I think that we get so um, carried away and focused on the latest dramas around the U.S. president and what, what's been the latest tweet and kind of get really absorbed in uh, analyzing all, all those intrigues uh, when really the midterm campaign has focused on, on really domestic policy uh, matters. So uh, what has been at forefront of everyone's attention uh, for the past couple of months has been healthcare primarily. So uh, it's definitely one of the defining issues of the election uh, where the Affordable Health Care Act um, or the Obamacare, as it's widely known, uh, where it's going to go. Uh, the fact that now we see the popularity of this uh, piece of legislation being much higher than it was ever under President Obama, uh, who helped pass it. Uh, but then we see a whole range of these other issues which are are mostly termed as, as wedge issues that drive a kind of divide between uh, the Democrats and Republicans, which include everything basically from immigration to climate change. It's a kind of story of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Mexican caravan, essentially. Uh, so gender relations, immigration, really uh, playing a large part or trying to be set on the agenda by particular sides of politics. 
Sure. So according to you, definitely uh, anti-incumbency is, is likely to be a big factor. I'd also like to touch on Trump's latest uh, plans for immigration reform um, that could uh, include an executive order ending birthright citizenship for babies born in the U.S. to non-citizens. Is it possible for Trump to change the 14th Amendment with an executive order? And do you see this uh, impacting the midterms at all? Yeah, so this is just another example of how the issue of immigration is being used now a week in, uh, before the, the midterms to basically rally up the base. And um, this is, I mean, the, the question of immigration for Donald Trump has been a defining issue of his presidential campaign, and he's certainly been rolling with it mm-hmm. uh, for the past two years of his presidency. Now, with the specific question of his uh, latest proposal to uh, basically deny citizenship to those that have been born in the United States to non-American parents. Um, The legal scholars are pretty clear and unequivocal about this. Um, President can't do it through executive action because this would mean going directly against the 14th Amendment of Constitution. This is one of the uh, amendments that was passed in the wake of the Civil War. So it's part of these Reconstruction Amendments. And uh, essentially what that amendment says is that all people that have been born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States. So basically, uh, unless some sort of legislation is passed again, which could then be challenged in front of the Supreme Court, um, there is no executive action that could pass the muster and this would get overturned very quickly in the courts. Also, I read about um, President Trump's decision to move the U.S.-Israeli embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Even um, Mr. Scott Morrison is uh, mulling over the idea to follow the U.S. action. I'd like to know from you, Gorana, how was President Trump's decision received domestically? in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, do foreign policy issues really have any impact on U.S. Election, um, domestic elections at all? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the decision to move uh, the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem has been kind of a long time running kind of issue for mm-hmm. a number of U.S. presidents. This was something that uh, was basically uh, part of still Bill Clinton's agenda, but basically every single president from Bill Clinton to now uh, President Trump actually has been able to uh, postpone that based on kind of security concerns. Now, uh, Donald Trump has been able to do that uh, as, as uh, again, as his prerogative um, as the chief of the executive branch. And this is largely a reflection of uh, the the administration's Middle East policy and and kind of preferences. Uh, It's basically a policy that very much sees Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia, for that matter, as key allies in the fight or um, in basically uh, competition with Iran. And so that explains a lot of other uh, policy decisions in in foreign policy front, like the withdrawal from the uh, Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action uh, with with regards to to the Iran nuclear weapon. Now, how was it received uh, domestically? Well, clearly, you know, you just follow the the kind of political tribalism and party preferences. So uh, those who are uh, aligned with the Republicans have mostly been uh, welcoming that. but obviously uh, a sizable uh, uh, proportion of U.S. populace uh, and Democrats in general have seen this as a move that has angered uh, allies, a lot of allies that has gone against the kind of conventions and traditions. And frankly, that sure. isn't doing much to, to help the peace process. 
Um, yes, most definitely. Then moving on to some cybersecurity developments now. We've read about examples of uh, voting mal- uh, voting machines malfunctioning in the early phases of uh, voting in, the, in these midterm elections in uh, Texas and Georgia. And there are countless other stories of these ma- machines being subject to significant security vulnerabilities, leading to questions of possible election tampering. How worried should we be uh, about stories like this and their impact on the trust relationship? Well, we certainly should be worried that, you know, the, uh, pro- the, that the integrity of electoral process is being brought into question. But what can be done about this is really a question of uh, the way that uh, electoral process is administered and managed in the United States. And that is to say that it's very much the story of federalism. Um, Unlike in Australia, where we have basically uh, uh, an organization that deals with this at the the federal level, the Australian Election Commission, you don't have a similar sort of body in the United States. Basically, what happens is that every state uh, is in charge of managing their uh, elections. This is the kind of beauty of uh, of governmental devolution and, and the transfer of powers from the federal to the state level. So, you know, those states that, uh, are kind of serious about it, are doing more. Those that are more lax are doing less. Essentially, it comes down to their secretaries of state to decide that. Those are the people that are in charge of the process. And what we have seen, actually, what's one of the uh, even more worrying things is the amount of voting restrictions that have been uh, enacted over the past couple of years to actually disenfranchise people from voting. So not only that we have this issue of potential foreign actors uh, interfering with the U.S. elections and obviously exploiting the fact that we do have uh, some of these uh, machines involved that uh, might be easily hacked. We also have an active push from some of the uh, uh, states, uh, governments that are working to disenfranchise significant parts of the population that might not be uh, with them on, on kind of uh, uh, political um, uh, political preferences terms. So um, southern states mostly uh, here come to mind, you know, Uh, thinking of what's happening in Georgia or North Carolina um, or uh, maybe some parts of the uh, Midwest like Ohio. So a lot of issues with voting restrictions there. You mentioned, you know, the differences in the voting systems between the different states. Related to that, do you believe that time has come for um, having a more standardized system of security to protect uh, critical election infrastructure? Again, this is something that has come as as a kind of recommendation in the wake of the 2016 uh, presidential election. So basically, um, the calls have been made that the Congress should do more to uh, protect electoral integrity. Uh, there have been some pushes uh, from both sides of the, the aisle uh, on that. But again, we haven't seen much progress on that front uh, as of yet. So uh, again, this is still very much a developing story, but you're absolutely right. I I don't think that anyone would dispute uh, the the need uh, to have uh, more security around uh, election infrastructure. It's a matter, again, of uh, US political system and the fact that we do have, again, still states as the main players uh, that, that comes in the way of this. So it's not administered federally. 
Thanks, Corana. It was uh, really wonderful talking to you, and thank you for sharing your insights. Anytime, pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Policy Guns and Money. We'll be back with our regular programming next week. 